Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right. Let's go. First Timothy chapter 5 is where we find ourselves as we are working our way through this letter from the Apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament to this young pastor named Timothy. It was the first of two letters that he wrote to him, hence 1 Timothy. And if you don't have a Bible, I would love for you to use one of the Bibles that is in the rack in the chair in front of you. You can keep that Bible. If you don't own one, it's our gift to you. And we'll have the scriptures up on the screen. But I think you'd be helped if you were following along uh, for yourself with, with your own copy of God's Word. That's our custom here to just work our way through books of the Bible. And we find ourselves in the second half of the fifth chapter of First Timothy, which is a letter, like I mentioned earlier, written to a young man by the Apostle Paul about how the church should live and be organized. Now, do you remember last week when we were going over the first half of First Timothy 5 when I mentioned that there are some passages in the Bible that are just like, not really zingers, you know, they're kind of maybe more difficult to preach because it just seems like more like practical instruction. Well, here we are again, brothers and sisters, First um, Timothy chapter 5, but I hope that you will see as we work through this second half of First Timothy 5, the really the incredible practical importance of what Paul is writing to Timothy about. He's writing to him about how Timothy is to ensure that the leaders of the church are kept accountable and how the leaders of the church are to serve the church. And I I pray that as we work through this text that we will see that that really that is an incredibly important thing. And and then, uh, Lord willing, we will see what is ultimately behind not just this letter, but I think the whole Bible. And it is the message of the good news of what God has done in his son Jesus to reconcile a people to himself for his glory. So I'm going to read, and then, um, then we'll, we'll work our way back through. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. If you're visiting with us today for the first time, and you think, oh man, they're, they're diving into something they've been doing for a couple months, and I'm not going to understand what's going on. Don't worry, we'll catch you up. You'll, you'll understand quickly the context of where we are, and, and it'll make sense to you as we go through. So 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in laying in the laying on of hands nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. 
so also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this, this text. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. It is divine. It's inspired. You breathed it out, caused men through centuries to write it down exactly as you intended for it to be written down. Because it's your word, it's from you. Because ultimately you are the author of your word, it is without error, it's perfect, it's complete, it's sufficient. It's all we need for life and godliness. And because it's from you and because it's completely true, it has all authority. So we want to humble ourselves underneath your word this morning and we pray that your people, I pray that your people would be encouraged and edified and exhorted and convicted by your word and that my friends who are in this room who do not yet know your son Jesus, which is what all of your word points to, I pray that even as we talk about a topic that doesn't seem to relate leadership in the local church, I pray ultimately that your Holy Spirit would lift our eyes so that we would see how all of this ultimately points to Jesus, your son, and his life and death and resurrection and his sovereign reign over all things. And use that, Lord, I pray, to open the hearts and minds of people who do not yet know you in this room, for that's the most important thing every Sunday when we gather, where we stand before a holy God. Help me now as I communicate and use my words to to encourage your people. And Lord, we pray for other local Bible-believing churches in our area. Thank you for Westminster Presbyterian Church and Berean Covenant Church, St. Andrew's Presbyterian, Calvary Baptist, Winbrook Baptist, and the many other churches in our area who love Jesus and who believe the gospel and preach it faithfully. Lord, would you encourage them and cause their gatherings this morning to be fruitful and God-honoring. Help us now, we pray, to do the same in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think the point of this text is leadership in the local church and some fundamentals behind how Paul or how Timothy, the recipient of this letter, is to think about leadership in the local church. And just by way of review, we talked a good bit about elders and who they are and what they are when we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 3 a few weeks ago, which gives a a full description of the qualifications of this group of people in the church called elders. Now, if you weren't here for that, or maybe you're new to that term, when the Bible in the New Testament uses the word elders, it's not talking necessarily about an older person or like a chronological classification. Elders is a group of people in the New Testament who God said were men that were tasked with leading the church. They were to rule or to govern the church. He uses the word here in verse 17 that these are men who rule or lead or govern the church. They're to be men who do this, but they are not an extraordinary set of men. Remember when we went through the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, it was just a really ordinary list. This guy needs to have a good reputation. He needs not to be a drunkard or a thief. He just needs to be a good example of what it means to follow Jesus, not some super Christian, not some special class, just a regular guy 
who loves Jesus, who is a commendable example of what it means to love Jesus, who also has a good handle on God's word so that he can deliver God's word to God's people. And that's the essence of church leadership in the context of what elders are tasked to do. They are meant to lead God's people, not by the force of their personality or some charisma, gift or whatever that they have, but by the delivering of God's word so that God's people are led by God's word. And these men, called elders, need to have this gift to be able to teach God's word. And Paul then circles back around in chapter 5, and he gives Timothy some more explanation about elders and what their role is and how Timothy should be very discerning and wise in deciding and and. And picking, in a sense, in this early church, who the elders are. So I want to give us four truths. I want us to work our way back through this text. And I want us to look at four truths about elders. Again, not necessarily old men, but it's helpful if they have age and grit. And, you know, they have like a mortgage and they can set their alarm clock and show up on time. I always, every little chance I get to jab young guys. Seriously, set your alarm clock. If the meeting starts at 7, show up. Five minutes before seven. Okay, I got that out. I'm okay. All right. It's, where was I? What was I talking about? Elders, remember, leaders of the church, not necessarily chronologically aged men. Four truths about elders who lead well. The first is that elders, church leaders, pastors, remember this word pastor and elder is interchangeable. We looked at that back when we went through 1 Timothy 3. Pastors, elders should be appreciated. Let me read verses 17 and 18 again. Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And so that quotation there in verse 18, where he says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, he's referring back to a passage in Deuteronomy where Moses is instructing the church about how to care for beasts of burden, like animals, like oxen who are treading the field. And he relates it to how a pastor or elder that is employed by the church should be compensated fairly by the church so that the beast of burden, the pastor elder, isn't hindered in doing his work. And so the implication is clear there that that pastors, elders, should be appreciated and fairly compensated for their work. Now, how does that work here at Crosspoint? Uh, it doesn't work by the people who work here deciding kind of like, it's not like me deciding what my salary is going to be. It's not like, you know, I've, I think I've had three really good sermons in a row. I feel like I got a little raise coming, right? No, that, that would be really, really unhealthy. The lay elders, men who are not employed by the church, uh, that have no financial interest and are completely impartial, along with some other people on a finance team, set our, our salaries of our church, and that's done fairly, and they use lots of uh, resources nationally to help us kind of think about, as a church, where we should be on, on all of that. And we can talk further about that later if you wanted to, or you can ask any of the lay elders how they come about that. But I think what we want to center on here 
as you see embedded in this, is that the, the role of the elder, as I mentioned at the beginning, is to preach and teach God's word. And Paul is calling for them to be honored or appreciated, not because they are a special set-apart class of men who in and of themselves deserve some special treatment. No, that's not at all, because in the next verse, he, he compares them to an ox, I'm just a big ox who's out plowing the field so that you can eat, right? But the point that Paul is making is not honor these men so that they would be a special class of Christians, but because they are doing the work of delivering God's word to God's people, the vital work of having God's church led by God's word. That's the biggest thing going on here. Not me, not whether or not you really like me or whether or not this, I get paid this. The most important thing for pastoral ministry is whether or not we as pastors are delivering God's holy word to God's people so that God's church is formed by God's word. William Steele was this Scottish pastor back in the 1900s and he wrote this Really, really, really good book called The Work of the Pastor. It's good for me. It'd probably bore you guys out of your mind. But I like it because he's Scottish and he's a little feisty. And it's short, which I like short books. And every now and again, he just, he just punches me in the face, metaphorically, as I'm reading his book. He's dead now. But listen to these words that he says about the importance. And maybe he's being a little bit um, hyperbolic here, but it connects with me. He says, there is no greater task a man can perform in the whole world than this, that he is being used to release the all-searching word of God upon a company of needy souls. It is the most amazing thing. It works. God works. His word works. Prayer works. The spirit works. And when we open God's word and we deliver, even when we just work our way in a monotonous way through God's word, beautiful, imperceptible, enduring, eternal things happen when God's word are exposed to the power, when God's people are exposed to the power of God's word. And don't, let's not believe it because a grumpy Scottish pastor said it back in the 1950s. Let's believe it because the word of God says it. This is what the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. He says, as he's commending them for the fruit that he sees in their lives, he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so every time we open God's word to read it individually, and when we gather to sing and to pray and to preach and to teach God's word, friends, there are things going on in God's economy, in God's way of working that go far beyond our ability to perceive in the moment, but are absolutely necessary for the life of a local church. God's word is essential, and God's church is to be led by God's word As faithful men, imperfect men, deliver it. And we as a church should create a culture, and we do this here. This is why this is such a joy to preach. I'm not fighting against. I'm not like pushing an elephant here. I'm just preaching things that are already happening here. Praise God. But we are to create a culture where those who are tasked with tilling the field are appreciated for that. 
Martin Luther, uh, the great Protestant reformer, the German monk who just went absolutely postal in 1517 and uh, kicked off this crazy little thing we like to call the Protestant Reformation, which, by the way, happened in history on October 31st. So tomorrow is the 499th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation where Martin Luther read Galatians and Romans and realized that the teaching of that of the church at that time was wrong and they were teaching that people could be made right with God by their works, by things that they would do. He read Galatians, he read Romans, he saw it clearly and he said, no, the gospel is is that we are justified by faith through grace alone and Christ alone. He wrote up 95 statements, he nailed them to a chapel door in Wittenberg, Germany and the world has never been the same since. And this is what he says about the power of the word of God to bring about reform in the church 500 years ago that's still happening today. He said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then, while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip of Amsdorf, (laughs) the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The Word did it all. Praise God. So just before we move on to the second point, just a few little, and this is going to feel a little, it feels a little indulgent, but I don't think I would be doing this text um, the honor that it deserves justice if I didn't just kind of speculate on this. Just some practical ways for us as a congregation to show appreciation to your pastors and elders. I realize I'm kind of like, hey, this is how you can love me well. All right. right. Ah, It feels kind of yucky. But anyway, and the other pastors. um, Some practical ways. I don't have it written on the screen. Just just write it down if you want to take notes. (laughs) And follow up. Uh, One way you can appreciate your your pastor's elders is to to give specific feedback about how their preaching or teaching uh, has has encouraged you. Give specific feedback. I know people sometimes mean it well, uh, but sometimes like you'll preach your heart out, a really difficult text, you know. You're just like, I'm up here sweating, pounding the pulpit, you know, going after. And then I'll see somebody, they'll be like, they'll walk by. And I know it's just like, what do you say? It's just kind of awkward. Like, oh, hey, I enjoyed that. Enjoyed it? I mean, okay. I mean, I know what you're saying, but maybe, maybe just like some specific ways that you're being encouraged. Share ways that you have grown spiritually as a result of the ministry of God's word through that brother. That would be really encouraging. Another way is to give grace to his family and his wife. And praise God that that happens here, but it's hard growing up in a pastor's home as a kid. That's a special kind of weirdness, you know? Like to be kind of like the, like everybody kind of looks at you, you know? And there's just this sort of expectation and, ah, just pray for kids. Like, <laughs> like pray, for, pray for my kids. Pray for my children, right? It's hard, man. It's, it's hard being my son, just even if I wasn't a pastor, I'm such a wreck. <laughs> but pray, pray for our kids. The enemy often uses the pressure and the hypocrisy that a child has a front row seat of 
to turn a child's heart against the gospel. Do you realize that? Do you realize that my children and my wife have a front row seat on my weakest moments and my hypocrisy? And that can be a really dangerous thing in the life of a child. Pray. Pray that God would guard the hearts of the children of my house and our other pastors, that he would shield their hearts from our weakness and hypocrisy. Remember that his primary task is to feed the flock the word of God and joyfully release him to focus on that and not on you all the time. The best way he can serve you and the whole church is oftentimes not to visit everybody or be involved in, with everybody on a personal basis, but to shepherd the whole flock through the word of God and let him know that you are praying for him specifically. Charles Spurgeon, you guys know him. He's my favorite historical hero other than biblical characters, a British pastor back in the 1800s, often credited the fruitfulness of his ministry with what he called the boiler room. And before the Industrial Revolution in the mid-1800s in London, when, where Spurgeon pastored, uh, energy was created in a home or in a business by all the, I guess, the steam that they would create, and so you'd have a boiler room. And Spurgeon called the uh, prayer room in his church, where his people would often gather to pray for his ministry and his preaching, he called that the boiler room, meaning that's where the power of the ministry of his church happened through the prayers of his people. So do pray for us. Okay, enough of that. Enough indulgence. Let's move on. Number two. Well, number one, elders should be appreciated. Secondly, elders should be accountable. Look at verses 19 and 20 again. It says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may stand in fear. So in verse 19, he says that um, be careful about uh, hearing and receiving criticism of elders because I think we all sort of understand this, whether it's church leadership or political leadership or whether you're the coach of a youth sports team or the principal of a school or whether you're just a leader in any capacity, whether you're a platoon sergeant or a first sergeant or a company commander, anybody that has been in any sort of leadership situation at any level realizes that leaders are going to take shots. They're going to take criticism. It's just part of living in a fallen, broken world. And Paul says here, don't listen to every charge against an elder except those that are are corroborated by two or three witnesses. And I think he knows this natural tendency that we have to criticize unfairly leaders. <laughs> leaders are people that are prone to criticism. This, uh, this sort of hit home for me. I um, On Friday nights, uh, I work the chains for my son's football games. Calvary Christian School, starting the playoffs next week. And whenever you have a home game... A group of people from the home team are tasked with work, working the first down change. You know, the men on the side of the sideline who have the chains in the box that tells you what down it is. And, um, well, I'm the captain of the Calvary Christian School chain gang. <laughs> have been for many years and 
It's quite an esteemable position. But I've got a little crew of guys, and um, we laugh because we're down there on the opposing team's sidelines, listening to the opposing coaches and their strategy, and also watching our kids play. And of course, we, all of us, we're experts on the game, right? And so we, we can't really talk during the game because you're right there with the opposing coach and you're actually kind of technically part of the officiating crew, so you're just supposed to keep your mouth shut, you know, move the chains as the kids move the ball down the field. But at halftime, we get together and we offer our commentary on things that are happening, right? And, you know, we will criticize the opposing team. Maybe if we're frustrated with our kids, we'll be frustrated with the way our kids are playing or what our coach should have done. And, you know, this running back should have cut up and hit this hole. And but really, my son actually threw a block. And if this kid would have just ran the other way, we would have had a touchdown. And I mean, do you see that we, we are all kind of just by nature critics? Thank you very much, <laughs> said the high school football coach. <laughs> <laughs> who I'm sure has received uh, zingers of emails through the years. Friends, that is our nature, but we must fight against it in church culture. There's something about American culture that makes events, whether it's church life or a football game, a kind of spectator sport, as if what it means to be a Christian is show up regularly enough on a Sunday, look like you kind of know the part, come, judge the music, did I like that song, went too fast, they did that chorus too many times, humming, 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 the air, it's too cold in here, it's too hot, you know what I hear every Sunday, it's too cold in this room, it's too hot in this room. And then, oh, well, the sermon was a little long. I well, you should have made this point. I don't like And friends, that's fine for us to engage. But we get into this mode where we are constantly like we're watching an event rather than putting ourselves underneath the authority of God's holy word, which is meant to transform our lives. And by nature as Americans, we are so spectator-oriented as we just come and we critique and we run off and we're mean to waitresses, we go take a nap, and then we begin our week again. (laughs) Friends, let's fight that. That is terrible for our souls, is it not? That's not to say, of course, that pastors and leaders are not above critique and criticism. Of course, leaders are not above that. But there is a way, a culture of appreciation and accountability. And then, when leaders do fail and sin, Paul is so serious about it. He says that it shouldn't be swept underneath the rug so that we, because we've got this event to put on. If something happens, oh no, we got to kind of, he's gone now. He's no longer here anymore. Let's talk about it. Why? Because the most important thing is not that we just do the event the next Sunday, but the health, the spiritual well-being of the people. And if there is sin and failure amongst the leadership, it needs to be clearly dealt with. Because the point of us as a church is not just to do services and attract people, but to be clear about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so, yes, leaders should be appreciated and given grace to, but they are also to be accountable and even held up to a strict standard because we all understand the pain that comes upon a group of people 
when leaders fail. And that is another reason to pray for your leaders. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be aware your enemy, the devil, prowls about like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. And just as on a battlefield, how strategic it would be for the enemy to take out the general or the sergeant major, how strategic it would be for him to take out the leaders of God's people. So they should be accountable. Thirdly, elders, pastors, leaders should be reverent. Look again at verse 21. It's like he interrupts his flow of thought and he says, hey, hey, listen. Because the point here is is that the audience is God. Look at verse 21. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. And so it's like he's snapping Timothy back into this this realization that the point of his ministry, the the true audience of his ministry, the, the true one whom we are serving is not the fickle opinions of culture or man or whatever is cool, but our audience is God and his heavenly courts. These elect angels who are this, along with this great cloud of witnesses, as it says in Hebrews 12, are watching and who we are doing our ministry in service of. Elders and church leaders are to be Godward in their posture. This, of course, does not mean that they don't care about people. Of course they should. But the best way, I think, that church leaders, pastors, elders, can care about people or care for people is by caring most about serving God. Church leaders must fight the temptation, especially, let me speak especially to young men in this church who are aspiring to some sort of gospel or pastoral ministry. And I want you to know that one of the visions that we have here at Crosspoint is for Crosspoint to be a kind of like fountain of young men who are called to gospel, pastoral ministry, whether that means full-time vocational ministry or maybe mission somewhere. We want to be a place, a kind of hub, where young men are come, can come, be trained, and sent out. So we don't want to just grow. We want to plant churches. We've got young men on this staff who are wonderful preachers who, Lord willing, in coming years will be either planting or pastoring other churches in Columbus. Praise God, we want that to happen, and we want other men to come. We want this to be a place where young men... That's why we started a pastoral internship uh, a, a few months ago to have young men come and be encouraged and trained and, and give them opportunities to, to, to really discern whether or not God is calling them in that way. And we want, we want this to be a fountain of gospel ministry. And let me just speak to young men who might be thinking about that. You, you must fight the temptation the pull of this culture to be cool and relevant. You have to fight that. There's something about leadership where it seems like the the deepest, strongest gravitational pull is is to be liked by the people that you are leading or communicating to. And certainly don't, we want to intentionally be jerks, right, or standoffish. But if, if the, 
the thing that is most important for you is to build a big ministry or a big church or to be liked or loved or adulated. I don't even know if that's a word, but I think you know what I'm saying. By the people that you are leading, you will miss out on your primary duty, which is to serve God, to be faithful to God, reverent before God and his holy court. And if you please him, then you will be a good and faithful servant. And elders should be reverent before God. And then finally, fourthly, elders should be discerning. Let's read 22 through 25. He says to this young pastor, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. What does he mean by that? I think he means in the context of what we read about earlier on in 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Timothy 3. In the early church, when they would commission a man to serve the church as a leader, they would lay hands on this man and in a sense ordain him to gospel ministry and, and set him apart for leadership in the local church. And Paul is telling Timothy, don't be quick to appoint leaders that aren't yet tried and true. So don't be hasty in putting people in leadership positions. Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. And then verse 23 is confused commentators for years. He just like he takes an aside and he says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. End of parentheses. What's going on there? We're not really sure. He just, I think what's going on is that Timothy was kind of a, a scared, anxious young guy. And his stomach was a little weak. And Paul's just kind of giving him practical health advice. Like, hey, don't, you know drink something that's going to help your stomach a little bit because you're so weak. And I'm really encouraged by that because it kind of tells me that Timothy was kind of wimpy. <laughs> and sometimes, <laughs> sometimes in pastoral ministry, I just feel a little wimpy. And it's like Paul is just, hey, oh, by the way, hey, 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 suck it up, princess. Be tough. I shouldn't have said princess. I'm sorry. Princesses are often tougher than princes. And I know that because I've been in the room four times when my wife gave birth to a child. And women are so much tougher than men. <laughs> That's the truth. And so wimpy male leaders need a kick in the pants a little bit. Hey, toughen up, buttercup. And he says the sins of some people are conspicuous. In other words, they're obvious. Going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So good works are conspicuous or obvious, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So I think what he's saying is, is very simply, be discerning. Be slow. Don't jump on every new fad that comes along. Don't just throw yourself to any trend that sort of culturally tosses the church to and fro. Be slow. Be patient. Be wise. Be humble. Don't judge your success by how many people you have coming or how many young guys you have around you that you're raising up. Just be slow and discerning. And God, in his sovereign grace, will cause things to shake out in the end for his glory and your good and the good of the church. And so we end with this, friends. Why is this all so important? Why would Paul take a detour in the middle of a letter and speak about elders and how Timothy should be thoughtful about who the elders are? Well, I think embedded in these last few verses 
is part of, really, the, the clue to why this is so important. Look at verse 24 and 25 again. It's, it's just speaking about this idea of sin. And it says that some people's fallenness is obvious, goes before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. I think embedded in that is this context of what the whole point of pastoral elder ministry is, what the whole point of this church is, is that we all will stand before God one day. And God has made a way for fallen man to stand before a holy God on that judgment day. And that's the point of pastoral ministry. That's the point of why we gather together as a local church so that we can all link arms and help one another as we approach that day. Listen to what Paul writes to another church, the church at Colossae. It's in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, and I think it sums up his ministry and it sums up what he's commending to Timothy and it sums up the heart of this passage. It sums up the point of why we gather together as a church. It says, Him we proclaim, speaking of Jesus and His work. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. So do you see the thread there? Paul is saying that the church exists. We're gathering together Sunday after Sunday, not just for our own sort of pleasure and joy, not just for our own sort of, you know, resourcing and comfort, but that we would gather together and we would have leaders who are prioritized on the gospel because the most important thing is that God who is holy has created a world that in his sovereign providence he knew would fall and rebel against him, and he has provided his son Jesus, God, fully God, man, fully man, in the flesh, lived a perfect life, laid down his life on the cross to bear the wrath that should have been ours, rose again in victory over sin, death, and the grave, and now commands all people and has given men and churches to proclaim that good news so that the, the highest, loudest note that we play as a church is that, that God is holy and our only hope is trusting in what he has done to make us right with him. And nothing could be more serious or beautiful or important than us having that one mind together. And we should choose leaders who give themselves to that task. And we should be a church who gives ourselves to that task. Friends, if, if you don't know Jesus you are not trusting in him, I pray that that's the loudest note that you've heard this morning. Not, well, this is how the church should be run and pastors shouldn't be idiots and, you know, you should pay them okay and respect them and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, all that. All of those are like little stepping stones to get to this one chief cornerstone, which is the fact that God, who is holy, has made a way, the only way, back to himself through his son. And that's why we exist. To stand on that good news and to proclaim that good news to you. 
Would you consider that news? Would you consider putting your hope in that good news alone? As I pray in just a moment, we're going to pray and then the worship team is going to come back and lead us in a few songs and then someone is going to come and read a verse and our time will be done. My prayer is that you would wrestle with that most important of all truths and that you, by God's grace, would put your hope in him. Now, I'm not asking you to do better I'm not asking for you to reach down deep inside yourself and determine to live better or try harder or stop this or begin that. You, you actually don't have any chance of doing that because the Bible's really clear that you're enslaved by sin and that your only hope is that God and His grace would move upon your life, give you a new heart so that you could believe in Him. And he does that by causing your ears to be open to this news right now. And it makes you alive. And now he gives you the gift of faith whereby you now look away from yourself and put your hope in Jesus. And you say, yes, I, I want to trust in Jesus. If you're doing that or you want more explanation of what it means to do that, don't, don't leave this room without talking to a person that you know to be a Christian. Several pastors will be down front here at the end of service. Go to that table right outside our resource room and get that book, Who is Jesus? There will be a pastor there to give it to you and talk to you more about it. Don't leave this room today without considering that. Let's pray together. Father, may we be a church who... pursues what Paul is commending to Timothy here well. That we have leaders who are appreciated and accountable, reverent, discerning. But may that not be the end. May that just be merely the means to the end. The end being the proclamation of your son. Lord, do what you would do with these words and this passage in our hearts and minds, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.